So I want to focus on three <coughs> phases of the um, Brexit process, the before, the during, and the after. What I mean by that is the process up to uh, the point at which the withdrawal procedure is formally triggered, and so in that context I'll talk about um, the famous Article 50. Um, the during, so that the negotiation uh, period, the, the likely period of two years, it might be longer. Um, I think Boris Johnson has said it's both very likely to be less than two years and more than two years. Um, so, so who knows? Um, but on that point, I'll focus on the role that Parliament might play and the role it's being offered through uh, the Great Repeal Bill. And then finally, after Brexit, the, 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 the assumption might be that once Brexit Day dawns, that's kind of the end. But I think that's simply uh, the, the beginning, uh, really. And there'll be a <coughs> huge test of thinking about the relationship between uh, UK law and the body of EU law uh, that is currently part of our uh, legal system. Let me take those three points in turn. Um, I think everybody now knows a fair bit about um, Article uh, 50. Uh, but just as a reminder, um, it uh, occurs when, or with the withdrawal process occurs, when a member state decides in accordance with its own constitutional requirements to withdraw from the EU. Once that decision is taken, there's a legal obligation to notify the decision, and notification triggers the two-year negotiation uh, period. The period can be extended uh, by mutual consent. Um, it's uncertain whether the period can be in effect extended by a member state withdrawing the notification and then perhaps uh, reissuing it, reissuing it uh, to restart uh, the clock. And if after two years uh, we haven't reached an agreement and the period isn't extended, uh, then that's when hard Brexit occurs. Um, not just in the terms that politicians use that uh, term to mean uh, being outside the single market, but how are Brexit in the sense of simply ceasing to be a part of the EU uh, treaty? As everybody probably knows, um, these issues are currently the subject of litigation, both in the High Court in Belfast um, and in the High Court in London. The arguments concluded um, just a couple of days ago um, in the, uh, the High Court in London. The core of the issue in the litigation <coughs> is whether the government has the legal capacity to trigger Article 50 by issuing a notification. It says that the decision has already been taken, but whether it has the capacity to trigger Article 50 by issuing the notification under prerogative power. In other words, it do this without actually going to Parliament and getting parliamentary authority uh, to do it. And the essence of that argument is that we are all the recipients, or at least UK uh, citizens are all the recipients of rights under statute law by virtue of Britain's membership of the European Union of the EU, that the EC Act 1972 is a source of statutory rights and that the prerogative can't be used to uh, remove those rights because that would be um, unconstitutional. The principle is that prerogative yields to uh, statute. Um, th there are some, I think, perfectly plausible counter-arguments to that view. One is that the EC Act simply says uh, that we give effect in UK law to such EU laws as we are required from time to time to give effect. 
In other words, we might see the EC Act not as something that confers specific rights on individuals, but it is simply a conduit to enable us to discharge such EU obligations as we have, if any. In spite of that, there are, I think, strong arguments in favour of the the, <coughs> uh, the argument is that there will inevitably be a lot of certain <coughs> rights, certain rights are not replicable by UK legislation. But even if we can legislate to provide the same kind of employment protections, for example, as those that we presently enjoy under EU law, we cannot restore things such as the right to vote or stand for election to the European um, Parliament. So I'm not going to try to, to go into any more detail on the case. It's, it's, it's pointless to try to second guess uh, what we're going to do now that argument has, has finished. Um, but I think the case is very finely balanced, and I definitely don't rule out the possibility of the government uh, losing. And that raises the tantalising question, what happens if the government does lose? And why is the government so keen in the first place to do this under prerogative power rather than by uh, statute? And I think if the government loses, it's a real uh, game-changer. I think it opens up a constitutional space for things to move outside of the government's exclusive control. It's clear from the speeches at the Conservative Party conference that the government is very focused on an executive-led withdrawal process that includes marginalising others who may want to have a say of the constitutional actors. If the government has to legislate, that opens up a whole Pandora's box of issues and problems for it. For instance, it, it means that pro-Remain MPs have got something to actually organise around, because it, it is quite likely that legislation will not straightforwardly be able to simply trigger Article 50. There are a whole lot of further questions and issues that people will seek to be bolting onto that, including as to the negotiating position or as to the process by which the government uh, actually takes things uh, forward. So it offers a way in pro-remain MPs. I think it offers potentially a way in for the devolved nations as well. If the government loses the case, presumably the courts are going to say Article 50 amounts to an irrevocable process that will result in the removal of EU law rights. That means it's also an irrevocable process that will affect the scope of devolved competence. And that in turn triggers the Sewell Convention, which means that as a matter of constitutional practice and query law, possibly under the Scotland Act 2016, um, that the devolved parliaments will have to give or will, will be needed to be asked for their consent for the enactment of the legislation. So it gives the devolved nations um, far greater leverage, even if at the end of the day, the UK Parliament takes the view that it's merely a convention and it doesn't have to abide by it. But it changes the political um, environment. It also raises questions about the involvement of the, the House of Lords. And I take David's point that uh, the House of Lords may well be very reluctant to, uh, to get involved uh, here. Uh, but on the other hand, it does raise questions about the Salisbury Convention and about the fact that um, the Conservative Manifesto um, was quite explicit about the single market. And it might mean that there are arguments around whether the legislation should address uh, that question. Let me turn to the during uh, then. 
What we know about the, the process uh, that will happen once Article 50 is triggered, whoever it's triggered by, is not very much at the moment. We know that the government thinks it's got to keep its negotiating position secret uh, because otherwise our position will be uh, prejudiced. That seems uh, nonsensical um, to me, um, and also impossible in practice to actually achieve. Um, what we also know is that Parliament is being offered involvement primarily via the enactment of the so-called Great uh, Repeal Bill. This will repeal the European Communities Act 1972, and it will take a snapshot of the EU law that is in force at one minute to midnight on Brexit Eve, and it will transform it into UK law. It is also likely to provide a legal basis for disentangling UK from EU law um, once Brexit has commenced. Do we need the legislation? Well, certainly we need some kind of transitional provision that preserves the effectiveness of EU law in the UK. If we didn't do that, then that would cause absolute chaos. There would be multiple enormous black holes in the statute book. But of course, that doesn't become a pressing problem until we're on the brink of uh, leaving. At the same time, repealing the EC Act isn't really necessary. Like I said earlier, it simply gives effect to such EU obligations as we have, and once we've left, we'll have none. So the Act could sit quite happily on the statute book, and it would simply do that. <coughs> so the Great Repeal Bill is a fantastic piece of marketing that places form over substance. It actually repeals nothing of value, and it preserves the whole corpus of EU law, almost as the opposite of what the name implies. <laughs> that makes one wonder whether it's anything more than a smoke and mirrors exercise to give people, and perhaps even uh, gullible MPs, the impression that they're being offered meaningful involvement in Brexit, when in fact they're being offered nothing of the sort. It seems clear that the government wants to keep Parliament at arm's length, um, and that is highly, I think, questionable. The House of Lords Constitution Committee issued a report on the involvement of Parliament in this process last month, and just, I think it was this morning, or perhaps yesterday, the House of Lords EU Committee published its report on this subject. I'll read you a little bit from uh, the, uh, the conclusions. It says, the forthcoming negotiations on Brexit will be unprecedented in their complexity. The direction of many key areas of policy affecting core national interests will be heavily influenced, if not determined, by the outcome of the negotiations. While the government has an obligation to deliver Brexit, it seems inconceivable that it should take the many far-reaching policy decisions that will arise in the course of Brexit without active parliamentary scrutiny. And by active scrutiny, have in mind uh, the opposite of the sort of fait accompli um, <coughs> scrutiny that David mentioned earlier, a sort of a kind of scrutiny that involves parliamentary engagement during the course of the process and some kind of parliamentary shaping of the negotiating uh, position. So it seems to me that the Great Repeal Bill is offering Parliament a kind of involvement that is largely meaningless as a consolation prize for the absence of the kind of involvement that is actually imperative. What about after? The process of disentangling 
UK and EU law will, I think, be a Herculean task. It's going to take a very long time. <coughs> the, the, the supposed appeal of the Great Repeal Bill is that it means that we can preserve EU law to begin with and then repeal or amend it <coughs> at leisure. But that doesn't quite work because a lot of the EU laws that will be brought in to domestic law by the Great Repeal Bill would be entirely meaningless if the UK had ceased to be a member of the EU. A lot of EU law relates to rights that we have as EU citizens that we will no longer have if the UK isn't a member. Equally, a lot of EU law confers powers or duties on EU institutions and agencies, or somehow presupposes the existence of such institutions and agencies. Again, it's very hard to know how we would make sense of those laws if we weren't any longer part of the institutional arrangements that they presuppose. There are further difficulties, such as what will be the relevance of the jurisprudence of the Court of Justice of the EU after we've left. If UK courts are still to be applying domesticated EU law, does that mean that they will be expected to refer to the judgments of the, the Court of Justice? So there's a whole set of very difficult issues that will have to be confronted, not at leisure uh, after we have left, but actually before we leave in getting the Great Repeal Bill uh, right. And that leads me on to my final point, which has to do with procedural uh, questions. It seems highly unlikely that Parliament is going to be able to um, do the disentangling itself. The sheer volume of things that will need to be done would defy the capacity of Parliament to make law. It seems extremely likely, therefore, that the Great Repeal Bill is going to have to confer on the executive very substantial powers of secondary legislation, so-called Henry VIII powers, to actually carry out many of these functions itself. And we might therefore see in the Great Repeal Bill um, a perhaps unprecedented transfer of authority from Parliament to the executive branch. And I think that really is the point that joins together the three aspects of the process that I've talked about, because at each of those stages, we see a dynamic in which the executive government is trying to marginalize other constitutional actors and in particular Parliament, and to have a very executive-focused process. The government doesn't want Parliament to be involved in the triggering of Article 50 because it doesn't want to open up the constitutional spaces that that might <coughs> bring about. It doesn't want Parliament to be involved closely during the negotiation process and instead is offering the distraction of the Great Repeal Bill. And equally, at the likelihood seen, but in terms of the longer term, the reshaping of the British legislative landscape, it is very likely that the executive will be driving that process forward rather than Parliament. All of which makes the notion that was central to Brexit of restoring the sovereignty of Parliament ring just a little bit hollow. Thank you.